G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. What's the real issue, folks? Jesus cracks the thing you've built your identity on all your life. It's not simply a matter of intellect. When you meet Jesus, you got to change everything. And you realize everything you've built your life on is about to crumble. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. You make me Today. Today. Today with Jeff Vines. Hello, my name is Bill and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Today we'll continue in Pastor Jeff's series from the book of Acts. As we look at the first Christians and the early church, this message is about cultivating a collective faith in a world that rejects the gospel and persecutes those who believe it. Pastor Jeff is preaching from Acts chapter 4. We're in this series called New Beginnings. If you have a Bible, turn over to Acts 4, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts 4. Uh, I want you to know something if you're visiting here and you're in the middle of this series. We know we're not good. We're not under any kind of illusion. We're not good people. We're all sinners here. We are in desperate need of the grace and mercy of God. And the thing that pleases us so much is that we serve a God who is a God of mercy and grace. There's no room for arrogance here. Not from this pulpit, not from anyone on stage, not from anyone anywhere. We are all sinners in desperate need of salvation by grace. When you come to the book of Acts and you start reading about the early church, the first church, that's the group of people that you find. You don't find perfect people. You find a mess. In fact, the New Testament would not have been written if they weren't messed up people. That just gave the apostle Paul some goods to work with. And so now we come to Acts 4. And the first question that we ask, if the gospel is really so wonderful that you're saved by grace through faith, then why do people reject it? And second, not only do they reject it, why do they persecute people who believe it? If it's that wonderful, think about what Jesus taught. Salvation by grace through faith. Compassion for all people. When you think about the history of the church that hospitals, orphanages, feeding programs, almost every benevolent organization originated out of the Jesus movement. So if that's all true, then why do we read a news article recently published that says Christian persecution to rise sharply? The expectation is for more and more Christians to die in the coming year. 
On average, we talked about a few months ago that every month 350 Christians are killed on average. Every month 105 churches are burned. Every month 219 are arrested without trial. They are imprisoned. Now, given the message of Christ's followers, it's not like they're leading a rebellion with arms. It's not like they're violent people all over the world. Then why? What is the big deal? If the message of Jesus is this wonderful, that we're all sinners saved by grace, man, that we, none of us deserve what God graciously gives us, then what is the big deal? Acts chapter 4, as we get into this part of the story, we learn that persecution is not a new thing. It's been going on for a long time. In the book of Acts, we've seen the first sermon, we've seen the first conversions, and now we see the first persecution. And what's amazing about it, do you know what sparks it? Peter and John healed a lame man that had been lame since his mother's womb, and that sparked persecution. I pick up the story in Acts 4, verse 1, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Now, just quickly, you'd think if there's a lame dude that has been lame since birth, had been healed, you'd think the first question would be, dude, this is fantastic. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then... Know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Now, I consider you to be thinkers. Am I right? You come to church to think a little bit, to be moved and motivated, but I'm assuming that you're thinkers. And if you're thinkers, you're going to have to do some thinking. Because if you ever found yourself asking this question, I just don't understand why my son or my daughter doesn't believe. I've taught him or her everything. I took them to church. I read the scripture. What's happening? I don't understand it. What am I missing? Or maybe this, I just can't understand why my college roommate is so anti-Christian. I mean, it's one thing to possess unbelief. That I can understand. But to possess hostility, why so hostile? Why so much anger? Or maybe you've gone to university. I just can't fathom why my professor at school attacks Christians all the time. I mean, there are other religions. Why does he just attack Christianity? Or maybe I watched this debate, and it was clear that the Christian position was the much stronger position, but it didn't change anyone's mind. They just became even more angry. Now, here's what Acts is going to show us. And I I can't just spill it out for you. We're going to have to do a little journey, you know, pour everything into the funnel, and then it'll come out in the end. What you're going to learn is this in Acts 4. Unbelief is not simply a matter of the intellect. It's not the lack of something. It's the presence of something. It is not the absence of empirical or intellectually based evidence. Rather, it is a deep, pervasive hostility towards something else. Now, I've got to repeat that. Unbelief is not simply a matter of the intellect. 
It's not the lack of something. It's the presence of something. It's not the absence of empirical or intellectually based evidence. Rather, it is a deep, pervasive hostility towards something else. And so a young woman goes off to university and she comes home one day and she says, Dad, I'm not a Christian anymore because we are modern people now. We know so much more than we used to and all this Christian stuff is archaic and outdated. My rejection is knowledge and intellectually based. And here's the operative phrase that I keep hearing. We now know. Now, there's a Greek word for that. It's my favorite Greek word, baloney. Every hundreds, every hundred years, people say the same doggone thing. And the thing that you now know that clearly disproves Christianity will be disproven in 10, 20, 30, 50 years, and they'll be laughing at you. An example is 120 years ago, critics of Christianity said this, we don't need God to create a great society. We have science and empirical tools, and we are studying cultures We're studying societies and human beings. We have the sciences, anthropology, sociology, psychology. We're going to figure out what makes people tick, and we're going to create the perfect society. We'll get rid of poverty and crime and mental illness and every social ill because science will solve the problem. That's what they were saying 120 years ago. Some of you are saying, Jeff, you're kidding, right? They didn't really say that, did they? Absolutely. And they said that would be the basis of why we will not see Christianity in the future, why Jesus will be eradicated and the Bible will be a faint memory. Now, when leading secular thinkers today are reminded of that, they literally cringe that their forerunners actually believe that science would cure all the social ills. And they'll tell you that science has not eradicated evil, but instead given us more ways and means to achieve it. Now, I'm not anti-science. Science is a good thing. Science and faith are incredibly compatible. Science is not the enemy to faith. But science can only do so much. A man's heart has to be changed. In other words, the critics of the last century and the critics of this century have absolutely nothing in common except they both hate Christianity. Now, what does that show? You can't denounce Christianity because of the modern knowledge you think you now have, because every century of the past has made the same claim and looks really silly to the generation that follows. You with me? So something else must be going on here. When I lived in New Zealand, I remember having a conversation with a a school teacher that taught at a very hoity-toity private school And finally, after some debating, some friendly debate, she looked me in the eyes and she said, look, Jeff, I'm going to be honest. I am simply far too educated to believe in all that stuff. Now, you think about what she's saying. She's saying that only intellectually challenged people would believe in God and in Christ. And I looked at her and I said, she, well, I wasn't going to use her name. So whoever this is, (laughs) have you heard of Blaise Pascal? Have you heard of James Simpson, the discoverer of chloroform? Have you, have you heard of a guy named Bach? Have you heard of a guy, Sir Isaac Newton? Or how about John Polkinghorne? Or how about Dr. John Lennox? To suggest that only non-intellectuals believe in Jesus or follow Christ means that you are either uneducated yourself or you're ill-informed. So please, please, it's time for you to become educated that there are plenty of great thinkers who follow Christ, who acknowledge the existence of God. As a matter of fact, Anthony Flew uh, was a, uh, a philosopher, taught
taught philosophy at Oxford. Not, so he, he's not lacking in brain matter, brain power. He was a noted atheist. In fact, you could call him the atheistic guru for other younger atheists. They sat at his feet. They would hang on every word. He was respected as one of the sharpest minds and intellects of the modern era. He was awarded the In Praise of Reason Award in 1985. It's the highest honor the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry awards. 30 plus books and articles. There's only one problem. In 2007, he said reason and rationality led him to begin to believe in God. He said, in keeping with my lifelong commitment to go where the evidence leads, I now believe in the existence of God. My point is this, come on, man. If you say educated people don't believe in the gospel, that just shows you're the one uneducated. And I say that humbly. We're not smarter, sharper than anybody else. I'm simply saying, be careful. Whatever you think you now know will be debunked in 10, 20, 30 years from now, and most probably you'll be laughed at. What it does say is this. When the person hears the evidence of God and the message of grace and mercy in Christ, if they reject it, something much deeper is going on. And their rejection is not based on intellectual or the rational. What is it then? And, I, and because we are a church, because we don't believe we're better than anybody else, because we have a love and appreciation for the grace and mercy through Christ, it is part of my heart to want you to understand what it is you're facing and to respond the way Christ would have you respond so that we can have a fully devoted follower of Jesus in every home in this valley and in the world. So what's the problem? Let me tell you what the problem is. When you meet Jesus, he cracks your cornerstone. In verse 5, the next day the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest family. Now you look at that, and at first glance you think, well, what's the big deal? I'll tell you what the big deal is. These people have nothing in common except they all hate the gospel. On the one hand, you have the Sadducees. These are the religious liberals. Morality was not objective to them. It was necessary to keep civic order. And religion in their minds was only good because it provided a moral code to keep society in check. They denied the resurrection. They denied the miraculous or the supernatural. They were simply secular people, moral rationalists. On the other hand, you have the Pharisees. Ordinarily, you get the Pharisees and Sadducees in the same room. They may kill each other because the Pharisees were the religious conservatives of the day, teachers of the law. They were hyper-religious. They believed in miracles, the resurrection, everything religious. They were the religious fundamentalists. And then not only did you have the Pharisees and Sadducees, you had the politicians, the military, the guards. These are people that have nothing in common except one thing. They hated the Christians. They were absolutely united in their hostility toward the gospel. And the question is why? Let me tell you the answer. Because Jesus cracked their cornerstone. Now, you say, okay, I got it, Pastor. What does that mean? Well, you got you to go with me on this little journey here. I think I shared with you a few years ago, I was in a debate with a history professor. And the debate was going very well. This took place on the island of Oahu, was when we lived in New Zealand. And the debate was going very well until I pointed out an error he had made in history concerning the Christian, early Christian church. And for some reason, suddenly it took a turn. He became very hostile, livid, and inconsolable. And I was trying to figure out what I had said. Well, the more I thought about it afterwards, the more I realized this man, 
believed that he knew everything about history. That was his identity. You know, I may not be rich. I may not be good looking, but I know my history. And that was the cornerstone of his life. And suddenly this pastor comes along and points out something that the whole audience knew he was caught on something that was wrong, that was erroneous. It almost destroyed him. It's like his identity came under scrutiny. Now, thank God, none of us are like that, right? (laughs) Oh, if I were to go down to this room right now and walk through these aisles, and I were to look you in the eye, and I would listen now, and I would say, what makes you special? There would be a battle between what you know you ought to say and what you want to say. Because everybody has this thing called a cornerstone. Everybody. For some of you, it's your looks. You say, I might not be the sharpest tool in the shed, but I'm beautiful. (laughs) You know, truly. You're the kind of guy or girl that can't pass by a mirror without having a look. (laughs) And some of you, you say, you know what? I may not be that athletic and you were chose last when you were in high school at every athletic event. But you say, where are all those jocks now? Huh? I'm the wealthy one. I'm the millionaire and those guys are chumps. So for you, it's the amount of money you make. Others, it's your work ethic. You say, I may not be rich and I may not be good looking, but you know what? I'm honest. I get up and I go to work every day. I pay my taxes. I'm a good ethical person. And that's your identity. And some of you, it's your morality. I may not be super talented or wealthy, but I'm a good person. I serve others. I treat everybody equally. I'm a good man. It's called your cornerstone. Cornerstone is, by Webster, is identified as an important quality or feature on which a particular thing depends or is based. It's a person's identity. Every single one of you have an identifying mark in your life. Something that allows you to hold your head up high every day. Something that you think defines you and separates you from everybody else and makes you unique. You, you don't say it out loud, but man... If somebody comes after that, there's going to be war. You, you with me? I may not can do those things, but I do. I'm a good mom. I'm a great mom. You know, I'm, I'm a good teacher. I'm a good person. I may have all these weaknesses, but doggone it, this is who I am. And it becomes your cornerstone. It enables you to hold your head up high and to get up every morning. And so you have a young girl that goes off to Berkeley. She's surrounded by people whose cornerstone is their intellect. Got it now? You with me? I may not be rich or good looking, but you know what? I'm successful. I teach at Berkeley. I'm one of the smart ones. Education has become their cornerstone, their identity. All these, you know, yay bobs and hillbillies out here in America. But then there's Berkeley. There's us, the educated crowd. And that becomes our cornerstone, which in turn, because you attend there, that ends up becoming your cornerstone. So you're proud, your intellect. Now, here's what's a little bit humorous about all that. When you're at Berkeley, you can look down your nose at all the state schools. You start to feel good about yourself because you live with the illusion that your cornerstone is stronger than all the other cornerstones. But what happens when a person from Berkeley meets somebody from Harvard? (laughs) And what happens when somebody from Harvard meets somebody from Oxford? I can tell you what happens because I've been in the room. It's one of the most enjoyable experiences I've ever had. (laughs) 
you see all these little self-quakes happening. you got all these young men and women. Suddenly, they've got somebody looking down their nose at them intellectually, and they don't know what to do about it. At first, they're angry because their identity's under attack. Wait a minute. If I'm not smart, I'm not anything. Why are you making me feel insignificant? Why do you think you're superior? And then second, you watch them just become undone because the foundation of their life is cracking. When anything happens in my life that begins to put a crack in my cornerstone, I usually feel my heart racing, my pulse quickening, and finally, my anger exploding off the charts. Why? Because everything I've built my life on is crumbling. This can also happen to religious people. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Paul tells us the gospel is a stumbling block to both. How so? First for the Jew. The Jew said, we may not be well-versed in the philosophies of the Greco-Roman world, but we're upright moral people. You see, the Jew's cornerstone is we are good people. We keep the rigorous, righteous law. As a matter of fact, we were just in Israel and whew, sun up to sundown, we were walking and trying to see everything we could see in a short amount of time. Most of us at the end of the day went back to the hotel room and crashed. Some of us still had energy. That wasn't me. And one night, a few of them just decided to walk. I think it was Tel Aviv or Jerusalem. And they, on the way back, mistakenly walked through an Hasidic Jew neighborhood. And the Hasidics, when they would see these Western Americans coming, would cross the other side of the street. And finally, one of them came down and told one of our ladies, cover up, because her shoulders were revealed. Okay, their identity is in their righteous living, the way they correspond to the moral law. They base their identity on Moses' law and the Mishnah, the description or elaboration of these laws. Their confidence is in that. They hold their head up high. They say, I may not have all these other things they have in the West. I may not be that good looking, but I'm a decent chap. I'm a good moral person. I'm part of the religious elite. I work hard and do my duty. And we separate ourselves from impurity, you see? So that becomes my identity. The Greeks, on the other hand, built their lives on education, philosophy, and knowledge. We're the thinkers. We're the sophisticated. We're the educated elite. We drink coffee in outdoor cafes. <laughs> we have our credentials. We produce our art. We write our poems and plays. See, the Jews would say, this is what's wrong with the world. People are not decent like us. The Greeks would say, this is what's wrong with the world. They're not sophisticated like we are. Do you know that Stephen Covey in his famous work, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he says that whatever you've decided as your center, which I'll call cornerstone, he uses the word gestalt. Whatever you've decided as your center, your cornerstone, the thing that identifies you, that becomes your confidence, your wisdom, your identity. And when somebody attacks it, even nonviolently, you begin to shake on the inside. Now think about this. Why would somebody be offended by Jesus who says, love your neighbors yourself, turn the other cheek, love and pray for your enemies, everything we value, grace, mercy, forgiveness, kindness, feeding the poor, embracing all people? What is it? What's the real issue, folks? Jesus cracks the thing you've built your identity on all your life. It's not simply a matter of intellect. When you meet Jesus, you got to change everything. 
and you realize everything you've built your life on is about to crumble. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. You're cracking the foundation stone. Those are fighting words. A Christian comes along and says, I got this whole thing figured out. (laughs) You think about it. This seems incredibly arrogant to the rest of the world. I have this whole thing figured out. I know that God loves me. I know that I know God. I know that I'm saved. And that irritates the hound out of people. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.